Revelation together. Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and uh, we'll be in the Gospel according to John tonight, and as was announced tonight, we'll enjoy the Lord's Supper as well. So each of you are invited to come out. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, and John the Apostle John writes in this revelation he received from the Lord, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things that were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us as we have sung this morning of your faithfulness, unfailing, always unfailing, your goodness. Sometimes in the middle of things, it can wonder about your faithfulness and wonder about your goodness as we're trying to sort it out. But always in the rearview mirror, it is amazing how good and faithful you have been to us and, and the work that you do through even the difficult times in our life that you accomplish uh, within us, the history that uh, you give us with you, that you know that we need now and we will always need. Thank you, Lord, for loving us the way that you do, as Pastor Paul prayed, and Jesus coming to die on the cross for our sins and, and to lead us not only into eternal life, but to give us an abundant life now. And we pinch ourselves for the privilege of knowing you and worshiping you. We pray that you would take this passage and you would open it up to each one of us today, larger and larger understanding of you, Lord, our understanding of your ways, and we ask this for this work of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. You notice the first word of verse 11 is the word then, and so it is intended to remind us that what we're in the middle of is a chronology of events, one right after the other. And following the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Christ, comes this next uh, step in the prophetic uh, picture, and that is the white throne uh, judgment of God. And with this white throne judgment of God, there's going to be brought a, a final end to all sin, all rebellion, even death and hell are going to be uh, once and for all uh, dispensed with uh, for eternity as everything then will give way to a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness and righteousness alone uh, will dwell. And so we have here what is known as the final judgment. No Christian will stand before God in this white throne judgment because Jesus has borne all of the judgment that our sins uh, deserved. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Imagine on that cross he bore every sin you ever committed, 
every sin I ever committed, every sin that any, everyone in human history committed, He bore on that uh, cross and He made a way on that cross for us to be reconciled to God and to, made a way for the forgiveness of our sins in order that we might be qualified then to have the very thing we've been created for and that is a personal relationship uh, with God. This is a judgment of non-Christians, all who, despite all of their sin, despite all of uh, the need for God's forgiveness, have just steadfastly refused all the days of their life God's offer of His salvation, of His forgiveness, uh, of His Son as their Savior, and all that is found in Him. The first thing that's captured John's attention here and what is a very sobering scene in verse 11 is he sees this great white throne and he sees the one who is seated on that throne which he proceeds to describe. It's a white throne we're told and this description of this throne is intended to distinguish it from every other throne that's been mentioned in uh, the book of Revelation and many thrones have been mentioned as we've gone through uh, these 20 chapters thus far. It is great not only in terms of uh, probably its scale uh, to the fact that it's larger than uh, any of the thrones that he's seen thus far uh, in the Revelation, but it is great in terms of the atmosphere surrounding it because that throne produces an atmosphere. And there's an awe and a wonder that he, even as a saved person, there's an awe and a wonder and a, and a godly fear that he is filled with as he sees uh, that throne uh, that is there, a reverence for what he finds himself uh, in the middle of and, and uh, uh, the atmosphere that it, it produces, an indescribable dread uh, that it ought to produce in anyone who might stand before it uh, guilty. If he feels this kind of, of a sense of awe and foreboding as a saved person, the idea is that no one would want to stand in front of that throne unsaved. In the ancient world, of course, a throne was a place uh, of judgment. It was the place where the most important decisions concerning a kingdom uh, were made. It wasn't a place that uh, trivialities were to be brought before that throne. The most serious issues related to a kingdom were brought before that king. And in other words, nothing about what uh, is about to happen before this throne is no triviality to God. It is very, very important to Him. And thus it ought to be very, very important to us. Its color is white. And that speaks of the absolute purity uh, of the righteousness and the righteous judgment that will pour forth from this white throne uh, judgment. It will be the standard by which everyone will be uh, judged uh, that is desired not to be judged in the light of, uh, of being under the grace of Jesus Christ and the blood uh, of Jesus Christ. It will be a righteous judgment that will come forth. John uh, uh, references him who sat on the throne. And John doesn't identify the one who sits on this throne. 
because John knows the one who sits on this throne has already identified himself in his public ministry. And uh, as Jesus declared of himself to the Jewish religious leaders in John chapter 5, for the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Elsewhere in chapter 5, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of life of condemnation. The Apostle Paul identifies Jesus as sitting on the throne. Acts chapter 17 verse 30, truly these times of ignorance, uh, he declared, uh, God has overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, that is Jesus, he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And so Jesus will sit on this throne. He will be the judge representing the entirety uh, of the Godhead. It's very sobering to realize that those being judged will be judged by uh, the very one whose visage was marred more than any man. Uh, by the very one who became obedient unto the point of death, even the death of the cross, and all of the horror of that cross, in order that no one would ever need to find themselves ultimately standing before him as a judge. The price that he paid, that he might be the Savior of all of mankind, and yet the rejection of him over a lifetime is ultimately going to land a person standing before Jesus in the light of the sacrifice that he has made and to stand before him unforgiven and their sins being undealt with in God's way. The scene is going to be intensely uh, heavy. Jesus is sitting on the throne, we're told, and he is no longer sits there as a Savior. There is no salvation that is offered uh, at this judgment. There is no opportunity to be saved uh, at this judgment. And that's going to be a, a scene against that, again that's so intense, uh, so sobering, we're told, that the reaction of the heavens and the earth will be to flee away from it, figuratively speaking. Now in the next chapter, it's going to talk about God creating a new heaven and a new earth and the old heaven and the old earth being done away with. That doesn't, that's not what's happen, happening here. But the scene will be so intense uh, for anyone on that scene that all of creation will simply disappear. Uh, it, it, it will be, it, the, the entire scene will be simplified uh, down into a throne, uh, one sitting upon the throne, and, uh, and, and then the person standing before that throne. But here you have the heavens and the earth. The scene is so intense that even the inanimate 
creation does not want to be present in what happens here. How much uh, an animate object or or an animate being uh, like a man or a woman. And all of it underlines the warnings of the writer of the book of Hebrews and Hebrews chapter 10 verse 26. For if we, we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace, that is the Holy Spirit. For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and again the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living uh, God. And so if there's no fear in a person's life today related to God, there will be fear uh, on uh, that day but on that day it'll be too late uh, to make a difference the greatest thing that any human being in this world can do to honor God and bless God is to put our faith in his son for the forgiveness of our sins the single greatest insult that a human being like you and I the single greatest affront that we can ever bring against God is to reject that Son, His Son, that He sent to pay that price for the forgiveness uh, of our sins. The result of this fleeing away of the earth and the sky from this scene, it leaves the scene uh, as spare as it can possibly be. There is no distraction. There's just a throne, There is Jesus sitting on that throne as judge. And then those who have rejected Him, again having counted the blood, the sacrifice, His sacrifice, a common thing as useless, meaningless, and having insulted the Spirit of grace standing uh, before Him. The scene before the throne is described for us in verses 12 and 13. We're told that the small and great will stand before God or stand before Jesus. In other words, God is no respecter of persons in salvation, and He is no respecter of persons uh, in His uh, uh, judgment. This judgment is inescapable. Whether a person has lived a completely anonymous life, unknown any longer to their own family, Uh, never to find their name printed in any newspaper, uh, 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 overlooked by the entire world all the days of their life, or whether they are one of the prominent personages in human history. Every single person is going to stand uh, before him. You notice that the books were opened in verse 12. And it's fascinating here is John's description of books plural 
and then book singular. And that both of these things are two very, very different things in this scene. The unsaved, we're told here in verse 12, are judged by the books plural, uh, but are cast into eternal judgment based upon the book singular in, in verse 15. We're going to see in a, a moment that the book singular is the book of life, the book containing the names of every person who is trusted in Jesus for salvation and eternal life. But it raises the question, we know what the book of life is, but what is this other category of books plural? Where we're told that uh, people will be judged here by what is written in those books. God's assessment of mankind is very, very simple. He is declared in Romans, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's his assessment of mankind. Each and every one of us has sinned in life. And the consequences of our sin is that we have fallen short, and we've fallen short of God's glory. And, and because of that, we have no capacity for a relationship with God in and of ourselves, uh, no hope of ever, ever entering into heaven on the basis of our own human effort or on the basis of our own righteousness. We are in need of a forgiveness. We are in need of a salvation that can only come from God in His grace. Now, each of us as Christians, we have no problem with God's assessment of us as sinners, as being less than perfect. Uh, it's the reason that we're Christians today. Can't become a Christian without realizing that I've sinned, and I've sinned against God, and something needs to be done uh, with my, uh, as a result of my sin. And so, in the course of our life, the Holy Spirit convicted of us our, of our sin, brought us to Jesus for forgiveness as a result of that conviction. But those that stand before the white throne judgment, they will not be Christians. They will stand before the white throne in judgment because they have resisted the lifelong work of the Holy Spirit in their lives to convict them of their sin, to convict them of the seriousness of their sin in the eyes of God, and then to bring them to Jesus for salvation. And so the question then becomes, how will God establish the great truth that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God on that judgment day? And the answer is, the book's plural. In the ancient world, books were largely written for the purpose of recording things, of course. And so they constitute a historical memory. And what will be opened here is a complete record of every unsaved person's life, complete with every sin that has been committed. It will be the equivalent of having a video record of their life being shown to them. And that video record of their life uh, will confirm God's assessment of every one of them as none righteous, no, not one. 
and firmly establishing, now belatedly before that throne, uh, their need for a Savior. Notice in this passage, too, that there are no uproars in this court. Uh, No one makes a claim of innocence here. Nobody accuses God of injustice at all. There's no need for bailiffs to keep uh, control of, of the courtroom because no matter how relatively moral a person might be compared to other people in human uh, history, when our every deed, when our every word, when our every thought, when our every motive, when every sin of omission in addition to sin of commission, uh, every thought that we've ever had uh, and uh, publicly or, or privately uh, is exposed, after the video is played, so to speak, it will be impossible for anyone to stand on their own behalf and then make a case for how they ought to be allowed into heaven on the basis of their own works or on the basis of the life that they've lived, a life that has been uh, exposed at that point. And so these books uh, will shut, as Paul writes in Romans, they will shut every mouth in terms of a person uh, proclaiming their innocence uh, before God, and these books will vindicate God's assessment of mankind as sinners in need of a Savior, and they will establish everyone's guilt before Him for the life that they have lived. And then it, it will pose a question to those that stand before the Lord, uh, what is a righteous God supposed to do with that? What is a righteous God supposed to do with a life like that? What is He supposed to do with our sin? Is He supposed to ignore it? Is He supposed to fill heaven with it? Is He supposed to turn uh, heaven into the hell that earth is? Well, of course He can't. And of course He he won't. Additionally, this white throne judgment is going to be necessary in order to determine the degree of punishment that each person will uh, experience uh, in, uh, in, in judgment, in the uh, eternal lake uh, of fire. And so there's going to be different degrees of eternal reward for those that are Christians, and there's going to be uh, different degrees of eternal punishment for the wicked uh, based upon their wickedness, based upon uh, the spiritual revel- revelation that they have ignored in their life. Jesus declared as he began to upbraid the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, Matthew chapter 11, because they did not repent. He said, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works had been done in you, had been done in Sodom, they would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So with privilege comes responsibility. You notice another book 
in verse 12 was opened, which is the book of life. And it contains the name of every single person who has accepted the truth of our guilt before God and then uh, gone further than that and accepted God's provision for the forgiveness of our sins by trusting in uh, Jesus Christ. It contains the name of every single Christian. The moment we become a Christian, our name is written in that, that book of life. Now, you notice in verse 15 that anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life will be cast into a lake of fire. In other words, no one is ultimately condemned based upon the book's plural, uh, based upon the sinful life they have lived. No matter how sinful a life they have lived, but they are cast into eternal punishment based upon the book singular. For having lived a sinful life, as all of us have, and never having trusted in God's offer of salvation and forgiveness found in His Son, and thus failing to have their names written in the book of life. All of the sins can be forgiven. A lifetime of sins can be forgiven. Jeffrey Dahmer's sins can be forgiven. Any monster in history, their sins can be uh, forgiven. Uh, but uh, it is the rejection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin uh, that causes a person to enter into uh, judgment. The wrath uh, of God that my sin deserves uh, remains upon me apart from Christ. As the Apostle John put it, he said, He who believes in the Son has everlasting... Uh, not the Apostle John, John the Baptist. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In verse 13, the sea, death, and Hades uh, delivered up the dead that were in them to be judged, each one to be judged according to his works. Communicating that death, whatever form a death may take in a person's uh, life, even if uh, they die at sea, they're buried at sea, their bodies disintegrate completely uh, into uh, the sea, uh, none of uh, those things will offer an escape for the wicked from this judgment. Many people endeavor to reassure themselves that death is not only going to bring an end to their lives, but it will also bring an end to being held accountable for the life that they have lived. And that is a false assurance. Now when he talks about Hades being cast into the eternal lake of fire, and, and the eternal lake of fire is Gehenna. There's a difference between Hades and Gehenna. Uh, Hades is a waiting place. It is a, uh, it, 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 the eternal lake of fire is the ultimate destination of, of the lost. And, but Hades refers to kind of a holding tank. It, it uh, houses the unsaved after their death until they're brought forward to the white throne judgment. When you might think about Luke chapter 16, where Jesus spoke, and it wasn't a parable, I'm convinced. He's talking about a real event. 
uh, talking about Lazarus and the rich man, and the gulf that existed between uh, the, Abraham's bosom and the hot side of, uh, of Hades gives us insight to all of that. The result of the white throne judgment is given in verses 14 and 15. Death and Hades, uh, we're told, uh, were cast into the lake of fire and notice uh, all that is associated with this uh, white throne judgment uh, is the second death. And so you're not only going to have uh, the judgment of, of people there, but even death and Hades are one day going to be uh, thrown into this lake of fire. Death, of course, having come into existence due to sin, and uh, Hades having come into existence because of death. All of that will be done away with at this point in, in human history uh, moving forward. And so the first death is our physical death. The second death constitutes an eternal death. We as Christians, we may very well, barring the rapture, experience uh, a, uh, the first death, and that is the physical death of our body, but we will never ever experience the second death, uh, eternal death or judgment for our sins. You notice again in verse 15, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so uh, obviously in the same way that we will receive kind of our uh, corruption will put on incorruption, our mortal will put on immortality, a body for eternity, made for eternity as Christians, somehow a, a, a resurrection body uh, made for eternity will, will be made, uh, will become their portion as well. Now, there's a whole world full of people that reject the God of the Bible out of hand, and they do so with a declaration that I just can't believe in a God of judgment. A God who would condemn men and women and, and hold them responsible for the life that they've lived and then ultimately send, sentence them uh, to hell on the basis of, of that judgment. But I ask myself, what is so unreasonable about God's assessment of us as sinners? Don't we see the proof of that assessment all around us all day, every day. Haven't you and I been less than perfect all the days of our life? Whoever had to teach you to throw a tantrum? Whoever had to teach you to steal a candy bar? Whoever had to teach you to lie? Your mom and dad sit you down and say, now listen, you're going to be a liar your whole life. We want you to have this under you. No. It's all part of our old Adam nature. We've sinned all of our lives. Every single uh, uh, one of us uh, ha have done that. And so, is it so inconceivable that at the end of our search for ultimate meaning and purpose in life, that we would discover a God who is so pure and a God who is so holy that but one sin would separate us from Him, would disqualify us from a relationship with Him, and from ever joining Him in His home in, in heaven. And, and would we want 
to have found at the end of our, our search, being directed by the Holy Spirit, would we have w- wanted to find something less than that to be true of God when we encountered Him? Would we have been happier to discover that He is only a slightly superior version of us in terms of righteousness and in terms of holiness? To discover that heaven is only a slightly improved version of the world that we live in uh, today. If that were true of God, and if that were true of heaven, if that was what God was like, then you and I would never experience what we've just experienced before I came out on the platform, the worship experience that we worshiped with God. Because a God, anything less than He is, would never produce worship in us. It would never produce that kind of awe and wonder and a longing to give Him the the worship and the adoration that He uh, deserves. Now, it is because He is exactly as He's described here that we worship Him and love Him the way uh, that, we, that we do. I can't speak for anybody else, but the, by the time I was done being a knucklehead and, and done fiddling around with sin and my selfishness and all of that, and I was ready to turn to God and give my life uh, to Him, I was thrilled to learn that He is nothing like me. I was thrilled to learn that He is perfectly holy. And then I was beyond thankful to discover that He had provided to mankind the only sacrifice that could qualify me to have a personal relationship with Him and the confidence of one day joining Him in heaven. And that being found in Jesus Himself in His death, in His burial, and in His uh, resurrection. To discover that God is both righteous and loving. Now, you won't hear any complaint from me about the holiness of God. And what people want to complain about in this regard is a cause for deep, deep gratitude and thanksgiving in me. That God is as heavy, as holy as He is, and that heaven is as holy as it is. Of course, it can never be said enough in order to attempt to root out this lie that uh, will probably go on all the way until there's a new heaven and a new earth. But this idea, this lie, that God sends people to hell willy-nilly and in some kind of ultimate fashion. And of course, to blame one day the fact that I stand before that throne and then incur the judgment that I would incur before uh, that throne and then to blame all of that upon God is the ultimate in blame shifting. Of course, blame shifting is a cottage industry in the United States of America. And so we don't even think about throwing God under the bus, uh, despite the life that we've lived uh, as long as we come out uh, looking good on it. And the fact of the matter is that the white throne judgment, at that judgment, every person who stands before Jesus will have determined their eternal destination long before 
they ever stand before him. And they will have determined their destination based upon, for them, a lifelong rejection of his Savior, of Jesus. And he will not determine their destination at all. He will simply confirm every individual's desires for their own eternity, the reservations that they've made for themselves, and uh, based upon what they have done or not done with Christ. And so how can one charge God with unfairness here when He's provided an escape for all of, uh, 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 of, all of this to, to mankind at such an enormous expense to Himself in the giving of His Son? Gehenna was never created by God for man, but it was created for Satan and the angels who followed him in his rebellion uh, against God. And if a person is determined to follow in Satan's footsteps and rebel against God, then they will share his eternal judgment as well. And Jesus spoke of that very thing in this regard. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. And then as he describes himself, and then he uh, will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. I think that in this vein, it is very important to realize concerning every person that stands before Jesus at this white throne uh, judgment, that it will have taken considerable effort on their part to end up in that position. They will have had to spend a lifetime ignoring the witness of creation to a creator all around them. And that witness of creation uh, to a creator to the existence of God and to have witnessed the majesty of this creation. To have witnessed a lifetime of sunrises and sunsets a lifetime of the four seasons of the year without investigating the origin of it and allowing themselves to be brought to God as a result of it. They will have had to spend a lifetime ignoring the witness of design in the world and in the universe. And the witness that design in the universe is to a divine designer that is uh, behind it, the existence of God. To fail to look at a newborn baby and marvel at the design. To fail to look at the stars in the sky and how they have their orbits and stay in their place. And, uh, and, and to fail to notice the design. King David wrote of the very powerful witness of creation and design to a creator and to a designer in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utter speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. In other words, they're speaking all of the time. Uh, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout all of the earth, the message everybody hears, and their words to the ends of the earth. In uh, them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven, and its circuit 
to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. And the point that David is making is that God is really, really hard to miss in life. If a person will just take a few moments just to slow down and give some honest thought to the creation, that is the design that is around us, and the origin of it all day, every day, they will have had to ignore the witness of their conscience, that innate God-given law that exists in every one of our hearts, that innate sense of right and wrong, and that we always ought to do right and we should never do wrong. That conscience that affirms us when we do what is right and then condemns us when we do wrong. And it condemns us with guilt. It condemns us with shame over our uh, sin. It, fills, it condemns us with regret. And our consciences expose every single human being Really, uh, virtually every day of their life, it exposes us as sinners, and it has done so all the days of our life. And so the conscience has been given to us by God, not so that we will harden it, not so that we will ignore it, but in order that we might notice our sinful condition before God to become aware of our need for forgiveness from God and of salvation, and then to run and put our faith in Jesus for that forgiveness and that salvation. They will have had to ignore or reject the Bible all the days of their life and and its revelation concerning salvation and, and so much more. The existence of the Bible in human history makes every single human being in this world responsible for having read it and for knowing it. If God has taken the time and cared enough for us to speak to us as He has in His Word, then every person is responsible to know the Bible and to to know it well and its assessment uh, of our lives and the needs in our lives and supremely our need for salvation and the provision of God's Savior. They will have had to ignore Jesus' life and His ministry and His miracles and His teaching. They will either have to ignore that or conclude Him to be a liar or conclude Him to be a fraud or to, to ignore the fact that He is the perfect match for every single need uh, in the life of every single uh, sinner, every need caused by sin. They will have had to ignore the witnesses of the changed life of every single Christian that they have run into in the course of their life that witnesses to the truth of the power of this uh, salvation. They will have had to fight and resist all of their lives, the efforts of the Holy Spirit to convict them of their sin, to warn them of the judgment that their sin uh, deserves, and then to bring them to Jesus for salvation. It's important to realize for us as Christians, uh, all of the hard work, all of the wooing, all of the hound of heaven that the Holy Spirit was in each of our lives, 
to bring us to a consciousness of our sin and our need to be saved, He is doing that to just as great a degree to every other person uh, in the world uh, today. And the point being in all of this is to realize it isn't easy for a person to end up in eternal judgment. It requires a tremendous and determined effort uh, to maintain that kind of spiritual ignorance or that kind of spiritual blindness. And the reason that I mention this is that when we understand these things, it strips away from any of our lives of ever thinking that I will one day stand before God and be successful in advancing myself on that scene as the the victim of that scene. It just simply isn't going to wash. And I might as well, if you're not a Christian here today, you might as well know that today as to know it when it's too late and you stand uh, before that uh, uh, throne. And so this blame shifting that's so entrenched in our culture and, and uh, it stands as an obstacle to people uh, soberly considering our own lives and our own responsibility for our lives, um, it isn't going to fly there, nor should it. And then finally, it's important to realize that this prophecy concerning the white throne judgment uh, is not given in a vacuum, but it's contained in a book. It's contained in the Bible. It's contained in a book that, with, uh, with, that is filled with evidence uh, that God not only gives prophecies, and this is a prophecy, this is, tr- this is history in advance, but that He then keeps His Word, His prophecies without fail. And so no one should ever bet against what's been said here or say, well, I'll just ignore this and I'll take my chances. An example of these kind of prophecies. He promised to send a Savior into the world by way of a virgin. And He did it. He promised that that Savior would be born in Bethlehem. And He was. He warned the people of Israel that if they did not repent of their sin and turn back to Him, they would be conquered by the Assyrians. He warned the people of the southern kingdom of Judah, the Jewish people, that if they did not repent of their sin and turn from it, they would be taken captive uh, by uh, the Babylonians. And these populations that were a part of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, they were as convinced that God would never judge them, no matter how great their sins were, as anyone is convinced of that fact concerning their own life, but He did judge them. They did go into captivity to Assyria. And they did go into captivity uh, to the Babylonians. He prophesied later of the fall of both the Assyrian and the Babylonian empires long before they occurred. He prophesied of the Grecian and the Roman empires hundreds of years before they existed and it happened. He prophesied of the 
improbable destruction of the city of Tyre uh, by Alexander the Great, and it happened. Jesus prophesied the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem decades before it happened, and it happened. And hundreds and hundreds of years uh, prior, he prophesied of the very day that Jesus would make his triumphal entry, reveal himself as Messiah and King to the nation of Israel, and it happened exactly on the day that Daniel had prophesied by the Holy Spirit. He prophesied uh, of the rebirth of the nation of Israel, and it happened. And I could go on and on. I won't. But I could go on and on all the way into the evening. It's estimated that the Bible contains 2,500 prophecies, 2,000 of which have already been fulfilled. And the only reason the 500 haven't been fulfilled is because they have to do uh, with uh, the future. And so to point out the fact, the folly of taking my chances and now betting that the Bible is going to somehow be wrong concerning this judgment and what will happen uh, at this uh, judgment, especially given the fact that 11 out of the 12 times that there is a mention of Gehenna in the New Testament, Jesus speaks uh, uh, of it. And He is the one who will preside over the judgment. And He promised in the context of the, all of the events of the book of Revelation in His Olivet Discourse, heaven and earth will pass away, but My Word will not pass away. Now the good news is that, is that this eternal judgment for our sins is the most avoidable thing in the world. There are so many things that we can't avoid in life. We can't avoid taxes. Uh, we can't avoid aging. We can't even avoid the common cold. There are so many things, substantial and insubstantial, that we cannot avoid. And, but this we can readily avoid by just simply accepting God's assessment of me as a sinner. And the recognition that my sin has separated me from a relationship with God. And it has disqualified me forever one day being in uh, heaven itself. And then recognizing that God loves me so much in my sinful condition that He sent a Savior in the world in the person of His Son to pay the price that I deserved in the eyes of a holy God who bore my wrath on that cross, uh, uh, the wrath that my sin uh, uh, deserved. And to turn to that Savior and say, I put my trust for the forgiveness of my sins in you. I put my trust in you to one day be in the glory of heaven for eternity when it occurs. And I 
Put, and I make you my Savior, and I make you my Lord this morning. And when a person does that, they are born again by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes into your life. A new nature comes into your life. And your name gets written in the book of life. And it will separate you forever and ever from ever standing. And the awesomeness of that scene before that white throne judgment. Well, prophecy is history in advance. How helpful is it to know history in advance? It's quite an advantage that gets provided to us. This is history in advance. And so to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And to be forearmed is to put my faith in Christ this morning. If you have never done that, if you do not have the confidence that you were to die today, that you would end up in heaven, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I do, and on behalf of this body, I encourage you, and most of all on behalf of the Lord, encourage you to do that today. Take care of the biggest decision, the most monumental decision you will ever make in your life. Take care of it this morning and take care of it the right way. If you sit here this morning and you have any need in your life that you'd like somebody to pray with you about, they'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank You this morning for as Christians that we will never ever stand before You or before Your Son as, as judge. Not in the remainder of this life, not in the life to come. We thank You for Jesus in the bottom of our hearts today. and We see why it was necessary for Him, not just anyone, but Him, to endure the cross, to despise the shame, in order that we might be saved from the very significant judgment that each of our sins deserved. Thank You that You're a God of righteousness. We thank You that You're a God of love. And we thank You that You're a God of grace. And we thank You this morning for the giving of Your Son as a gift to us and for the salvation that we have found in Him. And we thank You in His name. Amen. Brent, would you close us?